0: Our primary passage today, as we begin to think about what it means to worship God and what role music uh, should play biblically in the worship of God. So our primary text, our home text is 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 14 to 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, see now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command the servants who attend you to look for someone who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will feel better. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me someone who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a kid, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And Saul would be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would depart from him. It's an interesting story. Uh, the, the chronology of what's going on here in First uh, Samuel perplexes a great many scholars, but I'm not too worried about that today. What we're worried about is the role that music played in Saul's life here. And it might help us to explain why music has come to play such a prominent role in Christian worship, in contemporary Christianity. So there's a perplexing part here at the beginning of this passage, and it's this idea that God sent an evil spirit to Saul. And, and that takes some explaining. First, the word evil in Hebrew is not necessarily a philosophical or an ontological term. It's not like the category of evil. Evil is an experiential term in Hebrew. So if somebody does good to you, then they're doing positive things to you, things that you receive as positive. If somebody does evil to you, that's you're experiencing harm, or hurt, or suffering, something that you would consider to be a not good experience. So when the text says that God sent an evil spirit to Saul, what it means is it sent he sent an injurious spirit to Saul, a, a spirit that was harming Saul. And the text plays that out immediately. It was tormenting him. Now, I'm convinced that it's not a different spirit than the Holy Spirit that God had sent on Saul at the beginning that empowered him. So it was a positive experience for Saul early on. The presence of God was empowering. But when Saul turns, he lives in disobedience, he rejects the word of God to him, and he does his own thing, and he's rejected. That same presence that was empowering to him now begins to torment him, and Saul needed to find a way to get relief. Now we know how Saul might have found relief. He might have repented of his sins. He might have accepted the fact that he had been rejected as king, and he might have settled in his mind that he was going to be supportive of whoever God chose to be king following him. He might have made those decisions, but Saul didn't. Instead, he wrestled with the spirit and he continued to be tormented. So his advisors say, you know what works, Saul, when you're feeling tormented like this? Music. Music works. And it will work best if we can find somebody who is really good at playing the lyre, And who God is with, you know, who doesn't have a divided heart. And Saul agrees, and they go out and they find David. And sure enough, when David plays this musical instrument, that tormenting spirit that is is eating at Saul because of his separation from God, it goes to rest, and he feels better. one of the things that we learn here in the story is something we probably didn't need the story of Saul to know. And that is, music can quiet our inner demons. That when we are tormented, when we are in grief, when we are conflicted, music has a powerful way of serving as a type of anesthetic. We see that in Saul, and it's not just in Saul. Music, which is most often in worship in the the Bible used by pagans, is often used for this very purpose. Now, I begin our conversation about Christian worship, worship today in the contemporary 21st century church, because I want you to be aware that Saul felt better when he listened to David play. He felt better, but he was not closer to God. It was temporary. His experience while the music was playing was not an indicator of where he stood with God. And as we think about that, we'll realize why music has such a muted role in the scriptures discussion of what it means to worship God. Music can create a false experience. Let's take a look at the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 20, God is first revealing to his people how he wants to be worshipped. So this is Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. We find these words. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, you've seen for yourselves that I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You need make for me only an altar of earth. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. But if you make for me an altar of stone, do not build it of hewn stones. For if you use a chisel upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. They're not wearing undergarments and those sorts of things. So. There are a couple of themes here. Now, they become more pronounced as the Bible proceeds, but I think here at the beginning, there are a few things that are very clear. What God is addressing are the ways that the pagan nations typically worship their gods. Well, the pagan nations always made their gods small. They made manifestations of this God and tangible things that would connect them to the God. Now, none of them thought that the little idols that they made or the little symbols that they made were God. They never thought they were, but they did think that they helped them to control the God or connect with the God. And so they were always making these little idols as vessels through which they could get the God's attention or direct their prayers to the right God. This is a very pagan practice. And the first thing that God tells the Israelites at Mount Sinai when he's setting up a law for them is don't do that. Don't make these little gods. In fact, if you want to meet me, don't even make a neat, crafted, beautiful altar for me. I don't want you to take your chisels and make an altar of these fine stones. I want just make an altar of earth, of dirt, and then make your sacrifices there. Don't try to set up anything for me. And if you ask, okay, can we do that anywhere we want? The answer is no. You'll do it only where I make my name known. And if you do it there, then I'll visit you. What God is saying to his people right here early on in the story is, we cannot bring God to us. We can only go to him. We must go where he calls us to. We cannot make space sacred and then ask God to come to it. God is not invocable. in the Bible. God is free. He sets the terms. God takes the initiative, and that's important. So people have been doing this, trying to figure out how do we get God to bless what we're doing? How do we get God to come where we want him to come? But there's a sense here that God sets the terms, and that's what he's telling them right at the beginning in the book of Exodus. I'm not going to come anywhere you want me to come. You can't just set up an altar anywhere you want to and think that I'm going to come and join you there. You must come to the places that I designate by my name. God is saying, to worship me, you must come on my terms to my place in a way that is consistent with who I am. And of course, the law of Moses is where he is explaining to them who he is. Now, we can go back just a few verses here in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to really focus in on verse 5. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments, but I'm, I'm going to start in verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I often translate that, you shall bring no other gods into my presence. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything. So, these little gods that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, we're again in this space of idols, right? God is very concerned that we are going to make physical manifestations and we are going to bow down and worship them. The bow down phrase is the word chava. And it, it means to fall prostrate. It means to bend low. So he doesn't, he doesn't want you to pay homage to these things. That's what it means. He doesn't want you to show respect to these little images and whatnot. Um, so that's chava. But he doesn't want you to worship them either. Later, it will say you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That again is chava. You shall show respect to only the Lord your God and serve him only. I want to focus on that word serve. Because it's more often translated worship. It's a very interesting word. It's the Hebrew word avad. Many words are built off of it. Abodah, worship. Avad means, it means worship. It means serve. It means slave. It means work. Now there's another word for work, asa, to do something. But avad is work done in the service of another. Worship. So the word worship and the word slave and the word work, they are the same word in Hebrew. You shouldn't serve them. You should serve the Lord your God only. Worship is not what happens on Sunday morning. It's not getting everyone together in one place, singing songs, saying prayers, hearing a message. That's not worship. Worship in the Hebrew Bible is what you do with your body everywhere, every day. Well, then what do we do on Sundays? Well, that's also worship, which is what you also do at work, which is also what you do with your children, which is also any work that you do is worship. Anything you work for can be an idol. Difficult. So a worship service is a different kind of entity altogether. Now, what it is today, we'll get to maybe. I'm more interested that you understand what it is in scripture. A worship service throughout the First Testament, well, in the First Testament, it happened in the temple. That's where it happened. And it was at set times of the year that you went to worship. It happened four times a year. They went for Passover. They went for the Feast of Weeks. They went for Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and they went for the Feast of Booths. So that is the service, the temple services that they went to. Now, there's music there. If you look at the First Testament, the priests are in charge of worship. The Levites are in charge of worship, and they're singing all the time. I asked my friend, "Uh, what, what is the music part of Passover? He said, when isn't the music part? Everything is sung. The word is sung as it's spoken. They're singing on the way to Jerusalem. They're called Psalms of Ascent. They're singing on the way back from Jerusalem. They're singing while you're in the temple. It's happening all the time, but there's no set time where everybody looks in one direction at one leader and they all sing at each other. That, that's not part of temple worship. The singing happens all the time. And it probably was similar to the temple experience Jesus had. But there were no local gatherings in the days of the First Testament. That happens later. And by the time of Jesus, they're gathering in synagogues. And what are they doing there? Well, synagogues are just kind of like public squares. They're like community centers for Jewish people in the early days. Lots of things happened there. They would do charity work there. Uh, They would gather for Jewish work meetings, you know, because they were communities within communities. They would gather there for business kind of things. And they would gather there every Shabbat, every Sabbath to hear the scriptures read and to discuss them. And we see Jesus doing that. We see Paul doing that. There's no evidence that there's any musical component other than the reading of the scriptures. But the early worship of the synagogue in Jesus' day had no music at all. That was reserved for the temple. After the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple, what was ever happening in the temple now couldn't happen there. And it changed synagogue worship And it seems to have influenced the worship that Christians were doing in their worshiping communities. And some of the things that were happening in the temple now began to happen in the smaller worshiping communities because the temple was no longer there. And that might be when some of these more formal things started to come in and the synagogue and the worship service started to be more than just studying the the teachings of the prophets and the apostles and discussing them and having fellowship together and sometimes a meal, which is what happened in synagogues. And we know that they started like a synagogue because we have Acts chapter 2. Verse 42 is is the only verse we really get describing what the early Christian gatherings look like, but we probably don't have a lot of detail because they were more or less like synagogue services, except they were Christians doing it. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, this is Peter preaching, and he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. And here's their early gatherings. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Where's the songs? Well, that's in the temple, and I'm sure they sang all the time. It's a personal expression of thanksgiving to God. But do you know where music is part of formal worship? And this is going to bring back in Saul. Pagan worship. Pagan worship. Music was one of many things that the pagan people in the first century and in the ancient Near East before them used to create a sense of euphoria that they associated with the coming of a God. They used drugs. They used sexuality. They used music. They used dancing. They used whatever they could to drive them into a frenzy, knowing that once the feelings were there, the God had arrived and they could bask in that God's presence. So, music, you can see, is a muted feature. And when God talks to them in Exodus about how to worship in the tabernacle, about how to build the tabernacle, about what to do and not. He never even mentioned singing. He doesn't even mention it. But the pagans did it all the time. Now, music is a part of the worship of God. We have an entire book of the Bible that is more or less a collection of songs. But they were not used to drive the people into a frenzy in the context of worship. They were not used to create a sense of connection with God. They weren't used as a bridge for intimacy. Music was that, and it's used by Saul because he felt distant from God, and it gave him a false sense of intimacy. Music, drugs, sex are some of the best ways for those who feel far from God to numb themselves to the Spirit's influence so they feel less far. Music is an anesthetic. And pagans know this. Now, the distinctions I'm drawing between what God wants in worship and how the pagans worshipped and how the Jewish people, at least those following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the early apostles understood what was central to gathering together. Worship of God was everything you did. This is why Paul says... Slaves, serve your masters as those serving the Lord. Um, Submit to governing authorities as unto the Lord. Um, We have these, because for them to worship God was about the entire life and how we lived. It wasn't set aside for a specific time. But they did gather together, as the book of Hebrews says. Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But what did they meet to do? Well, they didn't meet to do what we meet to do. They didn't meet to feel better. They didn't meet to put their demons to sleep. They didn't meet to create a frenzy. They did not meet to invoke God. That goes all the way back to the beginning. God says he's uninvocable. You can't decide where God's going to come. You can't decide how to make him come. All these pieces are coming together. The gathering, weekly gathering of the early apostles was to reaffirm the story of salvation, to study the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, to encourage one another in the faith. There's fellowship, the breaking of bread. There's a sense here of celebration, but it's a celebration in the word of God and not a celebration of the emotions or the feelings or the flesh, the way that it was in pagan worship. So they gather, but they gather for the specific purpose of recounting the teachings of Jesus the story of Jesus, the teachings of the prophets, and the story of God. Now, when Christian worship operates at its best, it is a rehearsal of the scriptures. That's what it is. In fact, that's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are a rehearsal of the theology and the experiences of Israel. Music for the people of Israel is a way, it's a teaching tool intended to help reaffirm the story of God what it meant in the past what god has done and what could we can expect him to do based on that it's a teaching tool primarily it is not about emotion it is about education and there's a there's a spiritual component to the psalms where they also prophesy the future and that's an interesting one we're not going to get into that today my point is to say that the way we use music in the church is completely foreign to the gathering times of the early early Christians in Jesus' day and the early Jewish people that preceded them. Music is dangerous because it can make a person feel closer to God than they are. That's why we started with Saul. It was a false piece, and music can deliver it. This contrast that we're drawing between the worship of God and the worship of pagan gods really reaches ahead in the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 20. Elijah has invited Ahab to bring all the prophets of Baal um, up to Mount Carmel, which is a mountain in Israel on the coast. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophet's number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I'll call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, well spoken. So here we are in a time in Israel in which the people are convinced Baal is a real God. Their experience tells them that Baal is not a false God. In fact, many Israelites seem to have confused Baal with Yahweh as though they were the same God. And so they're not afraid of this contest. With Elijah, they are sure they can make this God come. That's what their whole worship was built on. I'm sure they had, however often they did it, experience with this God coming whenever they did what they're about to do. And the question is, what were they experiencing? Because the text is going to prove that they never were experiencing a God, but they thought they were. And so, how did they make it feel as though a God had come? Well, Elijah is going to expose that it's a manipulation, that it's a farce. So let's look at what they do and then look at what Elijah does and look at the difference between what it means to gather for the God of Israel, what it means to gather for a false God, for the pagan gods. So let's look at that. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and there was no answer. So they pray. That's how they make him come. They pray first. They cry to him. Answer us. Answer us. Desperate, sincere, please. But he doesn't come. Now, the question is, would they have thought he came if Elijah had not set up the requirement that the only way they would know he had come is by fire? I'm guessing that without that requirement, they would have already believed he had come. Because if you chant long enough, something happens emotionally within you. And they might have associated that with Baal prior to this. But there was no voice and there was no answer. The answer is the fire. The voice is the God speaking. Neither happened, at least not where everybody could hear it. They limped about the altar that they had made, which is a way of saying they were dancing. They they started to get themselves worked up. At noon, Elijah mocked them, so this has been a long time, a few hours anyway, saying, cry loud, surely he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And of course, they agree with him, they don't know they're being made fun of. Then they cried aloud. And as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out all over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. This is nearly nighttime when the sun's going down, but there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Up until now, if Elijah hadn't set up this challenge the way that he had, they would have already believed the God had come. The frenzy is there. The cutting is there. The dancing is there. The singing is there. The emotion is clearly there. These guys are so caught up in this thing. They're cutting themselves and bleeding all over the ground. They are really, really into this. But no fire. And no voice. But you see, they had never asked this God for fire or for a voice. That's what kept the false God seeming real to them. It was an internal God. It was a feeling. It was an experience. And the experience, they had it. So they knew that God was there, but he wasn't. And that's what Elijah is exposing. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribe of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water. This is during a famine, um, a drought, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And then he did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. He's building a little picture of creation from Genesis 1, where you have the land in the middle and a trench of water all around, right? That's the separation of the waters. And he has a little space in between, but he's allowing the water to run over the sacrifice too. He's more or less saying to them, according to Genesis, that all the chaos is everywhere. It's not separated anymore. It's in the trench and it's all over everything. Look at these people cutting themselves, bleeding all over the place, singing, stamping, frenzy everywhere. It's chaos. And so he's pouring. He's basically saying to the Lord, everything that you did in creation is being undone here. We're going to dump the water everywhere. The waters are coming back, just like in the flood. Look at this thing. And he's going to, he's, he's telling the story of God is what he's doing. It's just simply telling the story of God. At the time of the offering of oblation, so this is just moments, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I've done all these things that you're bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, They worshipped, they chava, they fell on their faces before God. And they said, the Lord indeed is God. Did he sing? No. Instruments? No. Long liturgies? No. Built an altar as was prescribed by the law. Set up the sacrifice as Genesis described creation. And then asked And he gave God specifically the reason he wanted him to answer. First, they all thought he was a false prophet. And so if he wasn't, he needed God to be the one to affirm him because he could not affirm himself. And secondly, let them know that you are God and Baal is not. And that's all it took. The fire fell. Tells us a lot about what God receives and what he doesn't and the way in which we can fake it. So let me put all these pieces together. First, music can make one far from God feel close. That's what happened with King Saul. It's intoxicating. Second, when God describes his worship to his people and tells them how to worship, he specifically tells them what he wants done. And one thing he never says is that he wants them to sing. Third, Israel did sing lots. And they sang right from the beginning. Moses, Miriam wrote songs and they sang them, but those songs recorded the history of God with his people. They were intended to preserve what had happened for the future and to be passed down through music. So music was a sacred type of education and it was used in the temple and it was used by the leaders of Israel. And David, probably one of the most prolific songwriters, does it to preserve the history of Israel in his day. And by writing about what it means to be king and writing about the travails of being king, he ends up prophesying the coming of the ultimate king in Jesus, who is an heir of David, fulfilled almost literally most of them in his life, and all of them figuratively. So music is important. The New Testament even says that we should sing always, singing hymns and songs and songs of praise, giving thanks to God and everything, praying continually, like this idea that the very heart song of the people of God is thanks to God. But it is not a way to bring God to us. It's not a way to make space sacred. That's pagan. And it's dangerous because it can create an intimacy that does not exist. And that's how the false gods keep their hold over the people. They give them things that put their consciences to sleep, that make them feel okay with their sin, that make them feel close with God when they are in fact quite far from him. You can have a similar experience in a rock concert that you might have in a Christian service. That frenzy that lets you forget everything, makes you feel for that one moment that everything's right in the universe, gets you lost. That's not the worship of God. That's how the false gods keep their worshipers. So, in our conclusion, how might we repent? Go one month with no music and see if the discussion of the scriptures alone reveals God. We must test the holiness of our services by removing the anesthetics. Let's see if the fire falls. Let's see if the fire falls when it is nothing but the word of God. Are there genuine worshipers of Yahweh in these churches? Or are they worshiping themselves, looking for feelings? You see, what God wants, the worship that is pure and honorable to him, as James tells us, is caring for widows and orphans in their distress and keeping unpolluted by the world, remaining unpolluted by the world. It's those who follow in the teachings of Jesus that worship God. The word worship means work. It's those who serve the living Christ. What God is looking for is those who serve him in spirit and in truth whose lives declare the glory of God.